Hello and welcome to the Licensed to Queer podcast, where we're on a mission to uncover why James Bond appeals so much to LGBTQ plus people. Why not see 007 from a different angle? This is the podcast version of the article Queer Review Die Another Day, which appears on licensedtoqueer.com, along with the Queer Reviews, a relook at James Bond through queer lenses of many of the James Bond films, and there's a lot more on the website besides that. If you've not listened to a licensed queer podcast before, then I recommend checking out some of the initial episodes, which kind of tell you what to expect, or popping over to the website, which has a kind of primer for how these things are structured and how they go, or just carry on listening. And I'm sure it'll make sense sooner rather than later. Enjoy. Queer Review, Die Another Day. Written and read by David Lobrigellis. Non-binariness is baked into the very DNA of Die Another Day, and not even experimental gene therapy can alter that. Although there are binaries aplenty, a dual mission, fire and ice, a dueling dual showdown over a divided country, the film rejects any earnest attempt to pin it down as one thing or another. Fear contends with desire in a cockfight to the death. Analyze this. It's easy to dump on Die Another Day. It appears, with the tedious inevitability of an unloved movie, at the bottom of many fans' rankings, including my own for a time. But the truth is, it takes less effort to just pick a side. It's easier to write off an entire film than to try weighing its handful of questionable creative choices against its admirable qualities. Binary thinking is socially desirable. We seek approval by taking a strong stance one way or the other and finding a tribe of people who agree with us and another group, them, who vehemently oppose us. Binary thinking is also instinctive and is a monster which takes effort to overcome. While Licensed to Queer has never been the place to review the Bond films in the sense of saying some are better or worse than others, it's impossible to analyse Dying of the Day from a queer point of view without exploring some of its commonly and less commonly cited flaws. The name's Bond. Flaming Bond. Like the recipient of a deeply suspect DNA transplant, Dying of the Day is an attempted blend of new and emerging trends in culture and filmmaking, with the feel of a classic Bond film. Not only that, it's narratively speaking both a rebirth and overcoming the monster tale, two distinct archetypal story styles. The resulting experience is an identity crisis unfurling, sometimes jarringly, in front of our eyes. And the film's identity crisis is mirrored, to an extent, in the character of Bond. When you watch the behind-the-scenes material for Die Another Day, it quickly dawns on you that key crew members were setting out, to begin with at least, to make the closest thing possible to a Cold War-era thriller. Brosnan himself said during filming that Die Another Day was shaping up to be, quote, 
a reality-based, character-driven piece. While it would be easy to scoff at this now, it is possible to see the film through this prism. True, you need to strain your eyesight a bit, but while many fans are prepared to look away from the less reality-based aspects of films like From Russia With Love, For Your Eyes Only and Licence to Kill, they are less inclined to do so with Die Another Day. Sometimes that's all they focus on. Perhaps this is because Die Another Day doesn't conceal its working. Its juxtapositions are more like contradictions. It's fitting that a fire and ice motif runs, not entirely smoothly, through it. When fire and ice meet, chances are you will either end up with an extinguished flame or with a puddle on the floor. They clash rather than complement each other. And although the heat of the inevitable coupling of Bond and Jinx at the end might incline us to think that fire has won the day, it's not that clear cut. Die Another Day being a damp squib in many people's eyes comes down to it being neither one thing or another, but multiple things simultaneously. And these oppositions are not always resolved. For a beginning, it starts off as one type of story and ends as another. One of the most influential examinations of the stories human beings find most satisfying is Christopher Brooker's 2004 book, The Seven Basic Plots in which he uses copious examples, including several Bond stories, to illustrate his argument that across the whole of human history, there are only seven stories. All stories are versions of these seven archetypal structures, overcoming the monster, rags to riches, the quest, voyage and return, comedy, tragedy, and rebirth. According to Brooker, all of Fleming's Bond stories fall into the overcoming the monster category. In this story type, the hero, Bond, is called upon by M to defeat a monster, Le Chief, Mr. Big, Hugo Drax, Blofeld et al., overcoming deadly ordeals in order to, quoting Brooker, end his adventure locked in fond embrace with the liberated princess. Even Fleming's You Only Live Twice novel, which Brooker acknowledges as being darker than any of the Bond stories which preceded it, isn't overcoming the monster story. I bring this up because in production photos of Dino the Day, the writers are seen with a copy of this book face up on their writing desk, indicating, unlikely as it might first appear, that they drew on it for this film. In Fleming's novel, a strange new element, according to Brooker, intrudes on the overcoming the monster structure, Bond acquiring the identity of a Japanese fisherman which threatens to break the overcoming the monster bond mold. You only live twice, Brooker argues, almost becomes a rebirth story. It only doesn't, Brooker says, because Bond has not really discovered his identity. He may have acted out the external pattern or a rebirth, but he has not been through any inwards transformation. He has merely covered up his old identity with an outward disguise. This critique of You Only Live Twice appears in the second half of Brooker's book, where he dissects stories which don't fit neatly into his seven boxes and are therefore, in Brooker's view, less satisfying. When I read Brooker's book for the first time, not long after its initial publication, 
I found it utterly compelling to begin with, before becoming increasingly irked by it. Perhaps something it has in common with Die Another Day. Naively, I believe my irritation with Brooker's seven basic plots stemmed from my own reluctance to concede that its author might have nailed it in one. The stories which the majority of human beings find satisfying are heteronormative, and that included my beloved Bond stories. Brooker writes, One of the key reasons for the success of the Bond stories was precisely the way they tapped unerringly into the springs of the human imagination which have given rise to similar stories for thousands of years. So accurately did the typical Bond novel follow the age-old archetypal pattern that it might almost serve as a model for any overcoming the monster story, end quote. As a gay man, reading passages such as this gave me an overwhelming feeling of swimming against the tide of thousands of years of human stories springing from the collective human imagination. To be satisfying to its audience and overcoming the monster story had to end with the rescue of a princess. Overcoming the monster, along with the six other basic plots, essentially gave us the map we use to live our lives. Was it therefore, millennia before I was born, predetermined that I would live an unsatisfying life? While Brooker was undoubtedly an erudite and learned man, it came as a massive relief to learn he was not right about everything. He was a climate change denier for one, and held somewhat controversial views about passive smoking and asbestos. Brooker claimed that neither were injurious to one's health. We can therefore take some of his sweeping assertions with a healthy degree of scepticism. Although he made a living out of controversy, espousing his discordant views in his column for The Telegraph, he does observe in The Seven Basic Plots that when we see two people locked in bitter dispute, almost invariably neither is wholly right. Each may be partly right and partly wrong, yet it is only too natural to us to oversimplify." End quote. Is this what is going on when people express polarising views about a James Bond film? While you can argue that it's a facile debate about something which is essentially trivial, is it really? Are we not really talking about something deeper? When we say we love one film and hate another, aren't we really saying we value some stories more than others because their structures mirror how we live our own lives? The stories we love validate who we are and the choices we make. The stories we hate help us to define and shape who we aren't. The need for queer people to come out in most societies means many queer people are drawn to rebirth stories in particular. It's common to hear gay, lesbian and bisexual people talk of their lives beginning in earnest after they came out. There's a reason why many trans people refer to the names they went by prior to their transition as their dead name. Rebirth tales are not incompatible with overcoming the monster stories. There is still a threat to be overcome, but this time it's more of a dark power, usually something less tangible. 
This power threatens to overwhelm them until they undergo a momentous transformation. While rebirth stories we encounter in childhood, such as fairy tales or Disney movies, frame the dark power as a supernaturally imbued external threat, a witch, an evil wizard, a ghost. In adult rebirth stories, characters are threatened, Brooker says, by the dark part of themselves. The key ingredient of a rebirth story is the literal or metaphorical death of the protagonist, which precedes their literal or metaphorical second life beginning. In Die Another Day, Bond dies literally and figuratively. After stopping his own heart to escape from his MI6 prison, he thanks the nurse who revives him for the kiss of life. But he's still under the dark power of being an outcast who is, in the words of M, no good to anyone. M takes a more enlightened view when Bond returns from Cuba, but he's still under the dark power, to a degree, through the rest of the story. So Die Another Day begins as a rebirth story and segues into an overcoming the monster story, the threat shifting from inside Bond himself to the more external, tangible threat of Gusto Graves with the rebirth story continuing to run alongside in the background. It's a queer structure for a Bond film. Interviewed by Matthew Field and AJ Chowdhury in 2015, Die the Day screenwriter Neil Purvis said that a story idea for the film which appealed to him was, quote, Bond, captured at the beginning of the story, spends the rest of the film trying to get home, end quote, but concluded that, quote, this isn't a Bond movie. Had Purvis been encouraged to persevere with the idea, we would have had a rebirth story from start to finish. It would not have been the first time that Bond was the black sheep left out of the MI6 fold. Bond goes as far as leaving the service in Licence to Kill. But it would have been very different from the Die Another Day we got. As we're watching the film, if we're not prepared to mentally make the switch from Rebirth to overcoming the monster ourselves, we experience dissonance. Our brains expect the Rebirth story set up in the first act to continue in the foreground throughout the second and third acts, but it doesn't. It's a strange paradox that a Bond film, which is probably better served by turning off your brain, requires you to make a mental effort to get the most out of it. The filmmakers appear to be aware of the bumpiness of the transition from one story type to another. The plane Bond is travelling on, signalling the beginning of the film's second act as he lands in London, experiences turbulence prior to landing. Bond Riley tells the cabin crew member, lucky I asked for it shaken. The audience watching this very shaken film may not be quite so accepting. Does this mean that queer people who are perhaps more experienced at making significant changes partway through their lives are pre-programmed to look on Die Another Day more favourably? Hardly. When I asked licensed to queer readers what they thought of Die Another Day, my Twitter poll of more than 300 votes revealed queer and non-queer people like loathe the film in roughly equal measure. I take from this that none of us likes a sudden left turn in our lives, even though some of us have little, if any, choice in the matter.
to a varying degree, all Bond films are clashing mixtures of things that shouldn't work together. Die Another Day has so many clashes, and even The Clash at one point, that nothing ever quite coalesces. The result is that we don't ever truly relax into the film. We are always slightly on edge. Die Another Day is not only a mix of different story types, but also time periods. It's neither new nor old, but both non-binariness. Again, you might say the same for all Bond films. They are all products of their times, with one foot in the present and one in the past. But Die Another Day takes new oldness to extremes. Back in 2002, I didn't think it was very Bondian to have 007 arrive in the film on a surfboard. But somewhat hypocritically, I had never found it troubling watching Roger Moore skimming across an icy pond in the pre-titles of A View to a Kill. I suspect time has a lot to do with this. I first saw more stunt double trying out snowboarding when I was only eight years old, whereas I was a more cynical adult when I saw a world-class surfer standing in for Pierce Brosnan at the beginning of Die Another Day. Throughout Brosnan's tenure as Bond, extreme sports had been growing in popularity. Exports were first broadcast by ESPN as an alternative to the Olympics the year GoldenEye was released. But so swiftly had activities like bungee jumping become mainstream that more was required for Die Another Day. Riding giant waves, of the real and CGI varieties, was therefore the order of the day. Is surfing then a Bond thing or not? It's both. The sequence feels both old and new at the same time, Bondian and non-Bondian. There's a similarly non-binary, new, old, non-conformity to the look of the film. Voguish experiments in photography and editing, particularly the Matrix's bullet time approach to showing off its Hong Kong cinema-inspired action, led to Die Another Day's editor Christian Wagner, who had worked with Hong Kong legend John Woo, using not just an unconventional amount of slow motion, but also speed ramping during the car chase in particular. But if you were willing to be contrary, you could argue this was an update of Peter Hunt's approach. From Doctor No onwards, Hunt removed frames to speed up the action, whereas Wagner pressed fast forward through them. The same idea, updated. New oldness. For anyone whose enjoyment of Die Another Day depends on their ability to suspend disbelief, the notoriously conspicuous CGI elements, the invisible car and Bond surfing on an ice wave, finally tip them over the edge. For many, it's Jinx's CGI-assisted backwards dive, off an impossibly high ledge, that marks the point where Die Another Day jumps the shark. No one set out to make a film that frequently looks fake, it's both endearing and cringe-inducing to hear, on the Inside Dino of the Day DVD supplement from 2003, the deadly earnest visual effects team explaining that it took them over a year to create the ice wave sequence. When the head of the effects team declares that the ice wave looks completely realistic as a result of their considerable labours, she clutches her necklace nervously, hoping everyone else agrees. A more significant break with Bond tradition is our hero being captured and held prisoner for over a year. He may be saved by the bell, but he does not save himself. The events of the pre-title sequence set Bond off on a dual mission, 
Number one, find out who outed him in North Korea. Number two, become himself again after having his identity stripped from him. The mission proper begins when he takes a rebirthing baptismal bath from the deck of a British naval vessel into the Hong Kong harbour, which had only recently been reacquired by the Chinese at the time of the film's release. With its literal and political comings and goings, Hong Kong Harbour is a liminal space if ever there was one, a fitting place for a character's rebirth. It's not a true rebirth yet, however. The subsequent scenes on terra firma attempt to convince us that Bond can be rebuilt the way he was with some well-chosen accoutrements. Bollinger champagne, freshly pressed tailored shirts, a sexual proposition from a woman who is obviously a honey trap and quickly revealed as such. But wait, the last time this happened in From Russia With Love with Tatiana, Bond didn't realise he was being filmed from behind the mirror. Something is off. The callbacks to Bond films from the preceding 40 years, peppered throughout Die Another Day, seek to reaffirm what we think we know about the character. But the cumulative effect is to put some distance between us and Bond. They highlight the artifice of him and his world. When Bond's well-aimed ashtray shatters the two-way mirror, it reveals a camera crew. Look, the film is telling us, you're watching a movie. There are cameras everywhere. You just can't see them. The illusion is shattered, along with the mirror. If we're prepared to go with it, it makes us call into question everything we think we know about Bond, and the ensuing Cuba sequence shoves this in our faces. Bond hasn't smoked a cigar in years. But why not? When in Havana? A floral shirt? Okay then. And while we're about it, why order a martini when you can order a mojito? A Cuba sequence in a subsequent Bond adventure, No Time to Die, has a similarly non-conformist feel. While it lasts, it hints at an expansion to the character's possibilities before the overcoming the monster formula inevitably starts snapping back into place, beginning with Bond's return to MI6. Bond's betrayal from within his own organisation parallels the experiences of queer people in the real-life spying profession, many of whom have suffered a great deal at the hands of their supposed allies. The ban on LGBT people serving openly in MI6 was not lifted until 1991, and according to one former gay spy, the fear of being outed persisted into the beginning of the 21st century, when Die Another Day set and the consequences of being outed were severe. A queer former spy interviewed in 21, anonymous for more than the usual reasons perhaps, said, I was outed to security department by colleagues while on my first posting, then put on the next flight home and told to expect dismissal. I was allowed to stay, but the price was heavy. A list of family and friends I was forced to come out to, a pink tag attached to my personnel file and years of resentment and fear. Throughout the 90s, there were direct discriminatory impacts on families and partners, allowances, pensions, promotion, career management, and postings." End quote. 30 years after the ban, in 2021, current M, Richard Moore, publicly apologised on behalf of his organisation for the way that LGBT colleagues were treated, 
stating that the vetting bar had been wrong, unjust and discriminatory. This followed earlier apologies from the heads of GCHQ in 2016 and MI5 in 2020. The irony of all this is that several of the most high-powered spies in British history have been queer. This includes the seventh real-life M, Sir Maurice Oldfield, who was in charge of MI6 from 1973 to 1978 and continued to work in intelligence at the Prime Minister's behest after retiring. He had his intelligence career shortened by being outed as gay by those supposedly on the same side. In 1980, a reporting to his homosexual activities from rival organisation MI5 led to him having his security clearance withdrawn. Until then, he was in charge of coordinating British intelligence forces in Northern Ireland. He died the following year. In 1987, he was publicly outed as gay by the Sunday Times, who had been fed the information by a right-wing faction within MI5. Queer spies, even those at the top, lived in the words of the former spy interviewed earlier, a precarious existence. Until very recently, queer spies were viewed as a security risk and, if caught, would be interrogated and almost certainly expelled from the service. We get a flavour of that from the opening act of Die Another Day. After Bond is traded back to MI6, he's interrogated again and made to understand, in no uncertain terms by M, that his getting caught out has rendered him useless. Bond says, The same person who set me up then has just set me up again to get Zhao out, so I'm going after him. And M replies, The only place you're going is our evaluation centre in the Falklands. Double O status rescinded. Bond, along with my freedom, M, for as long as I deem necessary, yes. Out of the frying pan, North Korean military jail, into the fire, and my sixth house arrest. Even after Bond's return from Cuba, it's not a hero's welcome. He remains disavowed. A deleted scene from the film shows Bond evading immigration checks at London Heathrow by hanging on to his plane's landing gear. Even without this scene, it's clear that he's M's dirty little secret, whose work on this mission will remain off the books. He re-enters MI6 through the back door, as it were. Specifically, he unlocks, using M's calling card, a giant key, an innocuous-looking door on Westminster Bridge and descends beneath the pavements to an abandoned tube station. Gay historian Peter Ackroyd uses the analogy of London as a human body, referring to the capital's pavements as the skin of the city. The underworld below, with its miles and miles of tunnels and passages, is, quote, like the nerves of the human body because it controls the life of the system. To Ackroyd, London's underworld is, quote, a place of fear and of danger. It can also be regarded as a place of safety. It is both malignant and a place of fantasy, where the ordinary conditions of living are turned upside down. The dialogue between Bond and M reflects the duality of London's underground spaces. Bond, I heard of this place. 
Never thought I'd find myself here. M. Some things are best kept underground. Bond. Abandoned station for abandoned agents. They need to talk about Gustav Graves, but can only do so away from prying ears. But they also need to talk about Bond himself. M. So, what have you got on Graves? Bond. You burned me, and now you want my help? M. What did you expect? An apology? Bond knows he's an outcast. M doesn't correct Bond's assertion that he's an abandoned agent. The message is clear. He will have to prove himself to regain his previous status. M is certainly not going to say sorry. Underground spaces, particularly those in London, have been synonymous with disgrace for centuries. An earlier chronicler, writer, historian and theatre impresario John Hollingshead wrote this in 1861. Even now, in these days of new police and information for the people, it would not be difficult to find many thousands who look upon them as secret caverns full of metropolitan banditti. When the shades of evening fall upon the city, mysterious whispered open sesames are heard in imagination near the trapdoor side entrances, and many London Hasseracks or Abdullahs in laced boots and velveteen jackets seem to sink through the pavement into the arms of their faithful comrades. Hasseracks and Abdullahs, by the way, are characters in a stage version of Forty Thieves, a popular play at the time. Bond may not be wearing laced boots and a velveteen jacket, so 19th century. Although, making something of a comeback now, thank you Daniel Craig, but Bond is impeccably turned out and he does use a secret door to access his comrades, M and Q. How much of what Hollingshead was writing about in 1861 was true? In Hollingshead's theatrical endeavours, he became infamous for putting raunchy content on his stages, including two decades after he wrote that passage that I read out, Forty Thieves, an Arabian Nights piece. A romanticisation of London's underworld reality, Hollingshead's description may have been, but he was reflecting the public perception of his time. He acknowledged this, another bit of Hollingshead. Imagination generally loves to run wild about underground London. A popular notion exists that those few sloping tunnels are a vast free lodging house for hundreds of night wanderers, and that to those who have the watchword they form a passage leading to some riotous hidden haunt of vice. Evidence that there ever was a hidden haunt of vice is appreciably hard to come by. It's not as if anyone wanted to leave any incriminating proof behind. But it's highly likely that queer people would have sought refuge and each other during times when relations between people of the same sex were prohibited. The role of underground public conveniences as meeting hotspots, cottages, for gay men is reasonably well documented mostly because many men were caught and convicted of the crimes they committed or were attempting to commit while down there, beneath the pavements. Maybe those in other underground spaces just didn't get caught. When Hollingshead was writing, the London Underground Railway where Bond meets M did not yet exist, but it was in its planning stages. He even includes a chapter in his book about it, 
arguing that although it's being built will result in massive upheaval, including the demolition of many houses, it is necessary to relieve the congestion and pollution on London streets. It may have also offered relief of a different kind, for queer people at least. Gay cruising has been going on for as long as gay men have had to find creative ways to meet potential partners and dating apps have not diminished its popularity. A 2020 poll on the world's largest listing of gay cruising areas put the underground top of London's list for places to meet men. They recommended the last carriage on any train as the best spot for meeting people. If data were available from 100 years ago, would we find similar? And it's not just sexual assignations that draw people to the tube. According to sociologist Dr Nina Wakeford, the symbiotic relationship between the tube and the queer community is complex. With a massive disproportion of underground employees and enthusiasts identifying as queer, though, the appeal of the tube for LGBTQ plus people is not in dispute, although the reasons for it are. She explored these for her book, Our Pink Depot. Although we don't see an underground train in a Bond film until 2012's Skyfall, another anniversary film showing off the best of London, this is the first Bond film to feature a scene in an underground station, even if it is an abandoned ghost station. At the very least, the underground scenes show Bond and other characters occupying a space which is liminal, a place where nothing is fixed and therefore inviting of queer readings. While the fictional Vauxhall Cross station was once a busy place with passengers using it to transit elsewhere, it's now changed its function. Its name suggests it is beneath the MI6 headquarters, located on the southern bank of the Thames at Vauxhall. Perhaps, coincidentally, or not, the area is also host to London's oldest surviving gay venue, the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. The tavern has been frequented by gay men since at least the end of the Second World War, its popularity buoyed by demobbed servicemen. The MI6 building, which was finished in 1994, is clearly visible from the Royal Vauxhall Tavern's front door. All that lies between the Grade 2 listed cabaret venue and the headquarters of Military Intelligence 6 is, fittingly, a tunnel. Some things are best kept underground. Writer Robert Wade is credited with coming up with the title of the film, a very Fleming-sounding idiomatic phrase that actually derives from a poem by the gay poet A.E. Hausman. The poem containing the film's title appears near the end of Hausman's collection entitled A Shropshire Lad. I'm going to read the poem in full. The poem's called The Day of Battle. Far I hear the bugle blow to call me where I would not go, and the guns begin the song, soldier, fly or stay for long. Comrade, if to turn and fly, made a soldier never die, fly I would, for who would not? Tis sure no pleasure to be shot. But since the man that runs away lives to die another day, and cowards' funerals, when they come, are not wept so well at home. Therefore, though the best is bad, stand and do the best, my lad, 
stand and fight and see your slain and take the bullet in your brain. It's a philosophical argument, weighing up dying young, possibly gloriously, or delaying the inevitable by running away from combat. Although in the film it's Bond who tells Graves, so you live to die another day, it's just as relevant to Bond himself. Both men have lived two lives. Intentionally or not, this reflects the double life of the poet A. E. Hausman. Knowing he was gay from an early age, Hausman appears to have fallen truly in love just the once with his best mate. Inconveniently, his best mate, a hunky rower he met at university and later lived with, was straight. When his deeply held feelings were not reciprocated, Hausman shut down his emotional life. He channeled his frustrations into his poetry, including some of those included in the collection, which supplies Die Another Day with its title. In the 30th poem of A Shropshire Lad, Hasman writes about the agony of forbidden sexual attraction. Here's an extract from that poem. Others, I am not the first, have willed more mischief than they durst. If in the breathless night I too shiver now, tis nothing new. More than I, if truth were told, have stood and sweated hot and cold, and through their reins in ice and fire, fear contended with desire. Throughout this intensely sad poem, Hausman uses the elemental battle between ice and fire to portray his internal battle with his feelings. Imagery which also brings drama of another kind to Die Another Day's title sequence. It's probably a coincidence, rather than someone on the production being keen on bringing a bit more than Hausman's title into proceedings. Either way, it's an effective visual metaphor for the tug of war between fear, ice and desire, fire, depicted in Die Another Day's titles and throughout the film as a whole. When Hausman died, he left all of his personal papers which were very open about his same-sex attraction, for his brother to make public. Hausman's brother did as he wished, and even penned an introduction to them in which he stated his personal and social reasons for allowing the papers to be read by all. Personally, he wanted his late brother to be fully understood, homosexuality and all. Socially, he hoped it would help make people more accepting of gay people. His moving words, their passion, and barely contain anger are worth quoting in full. In their treatment of the homosexual problem, the precious balms of the righteous have broken many heads and many hearts and ruined many lives. I have a hope that 25 years hence, their day of evil power will be gone and that society may at long last have acquired sufficient common sense to treat the problem less unintelligently, less cruelly, more scientifically. And if not, it may help to that end for the world to be given knowledge that one to whom it is deeply in debt for the beauty of his poetry and the eminence of his scholarship was one of the sufferers whom it has in the past found it so foolishly easy to despise and to condemn. 25 years hence, as per the instructions left by Hausman's brother, the British Museum opened the packet he'd left them. Uncannily, 
This was almost the same day that homosexuality between men was partly decriminalised in England. Hausman was posthumously outed with his consent just 16 days before the Sexual Offences Act 1967 came into force. That's the end of part one of the Queer Review of Die Another Day. I hope you enjoyed it so far. Shortly we're going to be moving on to the way that the Allies are treated in this very unusual Bond film. And before we get there, I'm just going to ask you a question to get you thinking for part two. How do you feel about cockfights? Thank you.